0: 21cl radio happy monday morning to you welcome to the education vanguard i'm your host michael boll thank you for joining me on this wonderful summer day i've got a great interview for you today i'm going to be talking to a guy by the name of dr damien babel and we're going to talk all about data Data, 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 and more data. I often hear the call for data at meetings, gatherings, or even the occasional happy hour. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. Today, I talked with Dr. Damien Babel, Assistant Research Professor at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College. More germane to the discussion today, Dr. Bell also works for the International Research Collaborative, a group of international schools looking to analyze data to look for improvements and trends in student learning. We cover the power of data ways to visualize it, and what it means for schools going forward. Enjoy the conversation. Dr. Damian Babel, thanks so much for joining me on the program today.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's my pleasure. All
0: right. Well, we met at ISTE, and amongst all the noise and excitement of ISTE, what we talked about certainly stood out. And you work with a group called the International Research Collaborative. And why don't you let us know what that is?
1: Sure. Well, the International Research Collaborative is a pretty unique uh, longitudinal research study and organization. And it's basically a, a collaboration of international schools um, serving K to 12 students that have pretty rich educational technology programs, and these exist in their own unique school cultures. But what brings these schools together is this desire to be a little more reflective and to use research to better understand how technology and how pedagogy itself is evolving. And so we are a collaboration of not only international schools, but research scientists data scientists, and educational leaders who come together for the sole purpose of collecting data together and then reflecting on it.
0: All right. Now it looks like you work almost exclusively with international schools. And how did all this get started in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it was definitely an evolution. Um, My career dates back about 15 years doing this kind of work as an assistant research professor at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College. And I design and conduct studies on the impact of educational technology. Like that's my career. That's what I do for a living. And I publish studies on this. And about seven or eight years ago, around 2010, Shabby Lutra, Uh, from the American School of Bombay Mm -hmm. suggested that I might find international schools being a really rich setting to conduct research. And there was a real good reason for doing so. In a lot of our public schools and municipal and government schools around the world, the locus of control on how we measure the success of initiatives or schools themselves or kids Mm -hmm. was outside of the school itself. So it's like a policymaker, like a governor or a state policymaker is saying, you know, you must use this assessment to show impact in international schools that locus of control is much more localized so we don't have these you know statewide or national exams that the school may not really feel is very congruent to their learning outcomes in in international school populations we can really kind of run down those rabbit holes and say if you're really about 21st century skills or Mm -hmm. creativity You know, we don't need to make the de facto measure of success this standardized assessment necessarily just because it's mandated by the state or the government. And so international schools have this independent opportunity to look really broadly at educational outcomes.
0: So I imagine, you know, I'm going to ask you how it works. So I imagine you're walking down the halls of international schools in Asia saying you are doing this right, you are doing that right, you are doing this wrong. Now, I know we talked before the show about all that, and I thought I'd give you that opportunity. How does it really work? Sure. You don't, you and- don't, do, you, do you walk down the halls or not?
1: Well, occasionally I do walk down the hall. Okay, good. I I am a data scientist. So, you know, my goal is as a psychometrician, we're trying to measure those things that we care about really deeply in education, Mm -hmm. like collaboration or creativity. And we talk about those things a lot, but what we find is that it, you know, until we try to measure them, it's really hard to know if we're, you know, having an impact. And uh, we're not talking about data-driven decision making at all. It's really around data-informed reflection. Okay. And so what we do is we don't know the right way of, of pedagogies. Again, we're just a collaboration of research scientists and schools, and so we are just creating tools and. Methods measurement opportunities for schools to try to measure the practices and attitudes of the students and teachers and community members in their school. Okay, And so there is no express value of one kind of practice or another. And in fact, our collaborative schools, there's not like a right or wrong implementation mode at all. And so we are simply looking at, you know, what are kids doing with technology? How often are they engaging in technology in different ways? Mm-hmm. What patterns do we see there? What does that mean um, locally? And then putting that in the perspective of other schools that might have similar types of programs. And so schools are really reflecting on what's going on in terms of classroom practices and how people feel about those classroom practices through the data we collect. But, in no instance is there like this express value in that any one practice is good or bad, and so it's totally agnostic in terms of pedagogy in terms of platform or implementation approach. We are simply creating tools that allow schools and and really you know f- put in schools' hands data around the practices and attitudes of of the people in their culture and program to allow them to better understand what implementation looks like. And moreover, by doing this across many, many different schools, we can sort of put this in the perspective of different cultures or, you know, just to get a little more context. But the point isn't that there's any one model or this is a horse race or it it could it's actually further from the truth. So it's uh, really about just being reflective in your own culture and using these as data points to help. Bring this conversation and evolution of practices forward.
0: All right, so I, I understand now, you know what it is, how it got started, and you're explaining how it works. It's not a, a judgment or a value judgment when you get the data. But what I'm curious about, and what probably a lot of people who are listening are curious about, are what are some of the things you learned over time now that you've done a lot of this, uh, a lot of this research.
1: Sure. You know, it's, it's a really good question. And and I think context is really important. And when we think about, you know, technology, it's very easy for us to focus on the device itself. And, you know, in and, and a lot of our roles. The deployment and implementation of a one to one program almost forces our hands to think about the device itself. You All know, right. what's the take home policy going to be? Is it going to be a, a backpack or a messenger bag? And, and in, in that process, we often lose sight of those pedagogical goals and often they're really unique and so all one to one programs or all educational technology really needs to be looked at contextually within it within its school culture and so i've looked at one to one programs where the sole purpose is you know test prep for a high stakes academic test you know, and to get kids ready for for an assessment, and you could have a school across the street implementing the same kinds of devices um, with the same grade level students and the goals could be much more around constructivist learning and providing more student centered learning opportunities okay and so that that context is something that we 've really learned to value by conducting this research in different settings and to understand and appreciate kind of what our unique goals are and what the unique strategic visions are for each of our programs and each of our schools.
0: So is that and, data shared like so you're saying that different schools look at data or look at technology in different ways so based on their culture do you guys share out that data so let's say I'm a school and I have a certain culture I can look for a similar school that has a similar culture as well and see what sort of data te- what their data tells could possibly tell me, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, you know, part of that has been, you know, working in international schools, there's, there's a fair amount of overlap just in terms of, you know, knowledge of each institution. And, you know, Uh it's a fairly limited pool we find. And so there's a little of that naturally happening. And, and what we have done to sort of facilitate that, you know, one, the first step is to sort of, just to be able to measure and look objectively as empirically as possible around just what practices are happening within a school okay. and what attitudes are happening. So that's kind of step one. And then step two is to sort of say, now that we have some data about that, we within our school have to make some judgments about that. Is this good or bad? Mm-hmm. You know, Do we want to see all of our students in our math classes using technology as a learning tool every day? And do we want that to see lockstep across all of our classrooms in in math across all of our grade levels or do we are we okay with seeing a whole lot of variation there you know so some classes might be kids are using technology every day with their particular teacher mm-hmm. and the kid across the hallway in that same school may very rarely use that resource and so once we get this data back into the hands of schools we find that there's some conversations that need to happen around values and you know we're not answering those questions as i said before we're just providing that data to allow those conversations to go a lot deeper and richer than they could otherwise and from that schools and- End up then starting to ask these bigger questions, like you're you're proposing there, like right. who else, you know, maybe who else has an implementation of iPads that's a few years old, sure. who's you know seeing similar trends in their data, or what is the implementation goals of this program? And so we built an LMS um, to allow schools, like through discussion boards and through other means of sharing, to be able to sort of pose that, both Ah. in terms of sort of their their bigger picture goals. So, you know, like, you know, we're really, you know, intent on getting kids, um, you know, some of our schools have a really big academic cognitive component where kids have to test to get in. Other schools we work with are much more what we probably consider, you know, whole child uh, in their approach. And how do each of these schools use their data to sort of show the effectiveness or of their implementation. So I'm wondering... And so there's opportunities to do that. And so sometimes schools align around the device type. Sometimes they end up aligning around sort of the maturity of their program Uh or the demographic that they're serving, uh, their constituents of students. Um, Sometimes it's just more around sort of a pedagogical similarity. You know, hey, you guys are an IB school, you know, with this kind of an approach, so are we. Now, how, you, how does your day? are you seeing the same kind of gender gaps that we're seeing around how kids use technology outside the school? So
0: I had a question. So when, you know, at least for me, when I am going to do some data or, or collect some data, I usually have some assumptions, whether I want to or not, about what that data is going to say. And I wonder if you had some assumptions like that as well. And if you did or didn't, were there any surprises w- uh, with what the data actually told you versus maybe what perhaps you thought it might say?
1: yeah, that's a good question. And you know again, you know putting this in sort of the context of you know by the time we started looking at the international school data, I had about ten or twelve years of of working with public and private schools in the United States okay. uh, around different types of technology implementation and really doing everything from studies where I was embedded in you know fourth grade classrooms, implementing one to one to really large scale you know statewide assessment studies. And so I, I wasn't sure what we would see. And, you know, for me, one of the most interesting things have been to question the assumptions that have come out of the schools themselves. So one of the mm-hmm. most common that we hear is is around teachers. And, you know, it's it's, uh, I think, a certain um, I don't want to make any assumptions while I talk about this, but you know, it's it's like uh, we hear a lot about you know what we need are younger teachers, teach you know our veteran teachers just are not making use of the technology to the extent that we wish it would be, or uh-huh. you know to to the extent it could be, and the data. Almost you know always and very consistently has shown that you know, first year and you know teachers in their first five years are very rarely those teachers that are making outstanding uses of instructional technology. Oh really you know and, and that's definitely not where they're at. You know I mean they're doing a lot of cool things behind the scenes with technology. Uh-huh. They're leading the pack if we'd like to took, look at you know cohorts of different teacher ages. They do amazing things like behind the scenes with finding resources and going online to differentiate materials and they know like where a lot of great things are for planning lessons and setting up resources for kids, more so than perhaps veteran teachers. But in terms of actual instructional use with kids in the classroom in real time, it's 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 those middle year and veteran teachers who are often the ones leading the charge, and you know those first those teachers in their first five years are often more struggling with just basic classroom management, okay. and so that's an example of just like an assumption. Another really fun one that we've played around with with a lot of our schools has been this this idea that um, you know around gender and and technology use. Yeah, what did and, you learn uh, there? Well, you know, it's it's very much. I think it's been culturally dependent to some extent, and you know, we work with some schools that serve you know very traditional Middle Eastern populations that have very clear gender demarcations that would be really different from an international school based in San Francisco Mm -hmm. or one in Brazil, um, where those gender differences you know might even be in a totally different direction. So it's hard to to you know, um, extrapolate, you know, from individual cases. But what we find is that we do a lot of assumption busting, you know, where people have sort of assumptions about why kids use technology or how often they're using technology or which teachers are going to be most effective users or higher on the SAMR ladder than other teachers. And what we find is that the data is just like, again, it's like turning the lights on. You know, and it's, you know, for me, visiting a school, either virtually through collecting data there or in person is a lot like, you know, it's kind of like a dark cave network, you know, teachers (laughs) kind of have their spaces, they close the door, and they're going to do what they think is best for the kids. regardless of the resources and the professional development that they've had, you know, they're going to do what they think is going to serve the kids best as they should. And so for me, collecting this data in a way that's kind of empirical and has maybe a little more reliability and a little more rigor than what maybe schools could do independently or what they've done traditionally provides this opportunity to just kind of question our assumptions and why we have those assumptions. And so uh, the first year of our work with many schools is just sort of those questions like, you know, are girls really on social networks more than boys? Are uh-huh. boys gaming all the time and girls aren't? Those or are my those
0: are my assumptions.
1: Yeah. And and you know, who is more distracted in class? And what we find is those questions, you know, when a teacher comes into the staff meeting and says, oh girls are just way more distracted when they use technology than boys in class. Uh-huh is a really good observation, but when we sort of look at their data from, you know, across six or seven hundred kids at that school, and we can, you know, visualize it in real time with these teachers, and say, well, what about, what if we look at kids who have Facebook access, and how that impacts how distracted they feel in class, and that has a much bigger role than gender, it, it really, you know, it, 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 it's really fun for me. And it's really nice because it's just amplifying the voice of their own community and their teachers in a way that help us better understand the situation. So, you know, as much as I'd like to say we have these huge aha moments across the study, you know that you know kids don't use technology as much in math as they do in science and social studies, which is true mm-hmm. uh, across our schools. It's much more about the individual aha moments, and sometimes it's like busting assumptions more than learning something new that we find is most valuable when All we work in schools.
0: So, Dr. Babel, I I want to ask you a different kind of question. So, I, re- sure. I read a book by a guy named Charles Duhigg who wrote The Power of Habit. You might be already be familiar with yeah. him, and he has a more recent book, Smarter, Better, Faster. And it talks about how, as human beings, what we, we do with data and, and the kind of information that you're uh, creating for teachers to see, and that even though it, good data comes along, it's often ignored by teachers or whoever it might be, because it's just too overwhelming and, and hard for them to use. Do you, do you find that as an issue, or do you play a role in that, where you hand people a bunch <laughs> of great data, and it's like, thanks?
1: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely, uh, and guilty uh, on all charges. Um, none of us were trained you know, professionally as Uh as school leaders, as policymakers, as teachers to, to make use of data like this. And, you know, I mean, for five years ago, if you told me we were visualizing data in real time where we could just like click a button as a teacher said, well, what about if kids have an Instagram account and we just click this button on the screen and all of a sudden all the data around their attitudes in school are filtered just for the kids who have an Instagram account. Uh, Okay. It's like I couldn't have dreamed that was even possible. So to have any expectation that we're going to have like literacy at this point. I mean it's like um, Seymour Papert used to talk about like the invention of cinema. And like right now we've invented like video cameras and things Mm -hmm. like that. And we really haven't created an art yet. (laughs) Um, And I think that's really fair to say. Um, the problem lies all around. You know, one I, as I mentioned, it's it's an issue of training, and none of us in our education were formally um, you know, taught about the opportunities and, and ways to extrapolate good information from this.
0: Sure, it just didn't really but exist what in those
1: days. I see though is is on our side in the data scientists, is that we have like really talented mathematicians, programmers, and data scientists coming up with things that sometimes are contextually not that interesting to teachers or, you know, (laughs) that are, are just not, visceral enough to work yet. And so it's an early science at that. And so we find, you know, simply taking like a distribution of how many minutes a kid spends doing homework in a given night and looking at that across a whole school and then filtering it maybe by grade or maybe if they're, you know, native to that home country or they're an expat or, you know, a few other variables allow people to see what opportunities very simple data has. And in most of our work with the International Research Collaborative is looking mm-hmm. at just descriptive data. Okay. We're not trying to see if, you know, if there's statistically significant differences between groups necessarily or make any big kind of inferences. We're just simply looking at what are kids doing? Um, how often are they participating in these kinds of activities? How often are kids collaborating in science class? How often are they using their smartphone to complete their homework assignments outside of school? And so, you know, just by looking at simple pieces of data, it's a little bit less, you know, like learning how to drive on a Ferrari then, you know, so we're we're trying to make it such that we're building tools that have – valuable information portrayed and that, again, the, the whole basis of this collaborative is the questions are coming from the schools themselves. It's not top-down research where there's like a single funding agent or a single policymaker saying, these are the things that we should be asking. It's really coming from the schools themselves. And so this provides that opportunity for those schools to really dig deep and think about, you know, what does success mean in their school and how do we measure that and how do we communicate that and this project this irc provides it's a little bit like a trojan horse and that we're providing some opportunities to look at really simple data Mm -hmm. sometimes really low stakes data you know i mean does a kid have an instagram account or not Mm -hmm. and you know it's not like you know are they getting into this the college of their choice or not or is it that did they pass the ib or not you know this is data that we can feel comfortable around and no one has too many uh too, too much one single ownership of it and provide some best practice for what we can do with this information and again how can it complement what we're already doing in those conversations we're already having so and, does, and if we can do that i think we're effective it's not to replace it you know it's really to complement
0: does it, does having an instagram account associate with getting a better score on the ib exam <laughs>
1: You know, that's a really good question. And we're just starting to crunch our spring 2016 data. Yeah. So we'll have to come back to answer that question. <laughs> that would
0: be a great one to put out on social media.
1: Yeah. Uh, right. I will say, you know, there is a relationship between social media use and distractibility in class uh, across most all of our schools. And again, those kids who spend more time using social media outside of school are those same kids when you hold everything else constant, uh-huh. the report being more distracted in class when they're using technology than those kids in their class who use uh, social media a lot less.
0: I got it. All right, final question then. Uh, let's, looking towards the future, you know, you've been doing this data collection for a while. You are able to visualize data in ways that you never could in the past. What excites you? Or, you know, What's moving forward? What might you be able to do in the next few years that you can't do now or want to do or want to look into in the, in the future?
1: Yeah, that, that's... Uh, you know, it's it's easy to get overwhelmed when we're trying to like fly the ship and build it at the same time. Sometimes, sure, um, and that's sort of the nature of cutting edge. And and this work with the collaboration allows us to really push the envelope in terms of what we can do with data visualizations. And you know, it's really a very nimble kind of operation, and so we can really be pretty progressive in how we think about the future and and what's next. And I think for us. Um, you know, being able to help schools measure what they think matters most is where this is, is, is really, I think, can help schools uh, achieve not just in terms of, you know, evaluating through surveys the effectiveness or, you know, the practices around educational technology, mm. but ultimately, you know, looking at your school mission statement. Looking at those components that you think are valuable and you're espousing to your community, and often there are things like you know, emotional development and social development or civic development, how are you measuring and communicating those kinds of uh, facets of the educational experience? And for a very long time, schools have kind of been on the receiving end, particularly international schools, of how they have measured and defined success. Okay. And Craig Johnson, I think, at ASB went so far this year to sort of say it's kind of the tail wagging the dog often. Right, right, right. And so what we're trying to do is build a capacity, I think, that schools can ultimately define and measure success on their own terms. And so if the IB isn't the perfect you know, representation of what your school is espousing to do or only part of that whole picture, how can you – build empirical and rigorous tools or use rigorous tools in ways that allow you to tell your whole school story okay. and that whole story of students. So for me it's going to be this democratization basically of assessment tools that allow us to think a little further beyond those academic and cognitive measures that we've become that have sort of become the de facto measure of what student success means in schools.
0: All right. I've been speaking with Dr. Damian Babel. He is the Assistant Research prof- Professor excuse me, at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College and, of course, a leading member of the International Research Collaborative. Thanks so much for your time today. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. This interview was brought to you by 21st Century Learning International. Find us on the web at 21clradio.com.